Hi everyone, it's Jackie here. Before we kick off today, I just wanted to acknowledge the protests that have been going on around the world, including here in Australia, against racism and police brutality. Like many of you, I've been listening and learning as much as I can over these past couple of weeks and thinking about the actions that I can take to contribute in a positive way. I started this podcast to shine a light on women's stories, and it's important to me to showcase women from a diverse range of fields and backgrounds. I am committed to keep getting better at this, and I love hearing your ideas about the women you'd love to hear interviewed on the show too. So please keep those ideas coming. You can send us a DM on Instagram at What She Did Next Podcast, or get in touch via the website, whatshedidnext.com.au. I also wanted to flag that the organisation we'll be talking about today, the Women's Justice Network, supports a diversity of women in the criminal justice system, including Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women, culturally and linguistically diverse women, women with disability, and women of diverse sexualities and gender identities. And they've recently appointed an advisory panel of women from diverse backgrounds to steer the direction of the organisation, which is really important and fantastic to hear. In today's episode, we do also talk about issues of drug and alcohol addiction, so please consider this before listening, particularly if you might find this triggering. Thank you as always for your support, and now onto the show. At a really low point when everyone on the outside was struggling to understand what was happening for me, this relationship that I'd made with this mentor through the Women's Justice Network became like like a little beacon for me of hope. I suddenly had this complete stranger who wanted to know about me, didn't want to know about all the things, the awful things, you know, they wanted to know about who I was and what my hopes and dreams were and like was really fascinated with just who I was as a person and that was really cool. Welcome to this week's episode of What She Did Next. I'm your host, Jackie Uwe, and I also produce the show. In this series, we talk to women across different industries about a big career or life change they made, how it came about and where it took them next. Today I'm speaking with Ali Jade, an artist and youth worker with the Women's Justice Network, a not-for-profit organisation in Sydney that provides vital support for women and girls affected by the criminal justice system. Ali has a unique insight into what these women are going through because she actually spent time in prison herself after her battles with addiction and mental health issues came to a head in 2015. It was that experience that led her to become a passionate advocate and mentor for women in the criminal justice system and to give back to the organisation that helped her when she really needed some support. Over the past three years, Ali has turned her life around in the most incredible way and she's now using her artistic talents, her recent studies and her lived experience to help other women in prison change the narrative around how they see themselves and how society sees them, so that they can have a much brighter future ahead. Here's my chat with Ali Jade. So Ali, I read that you've been drawing and painting for as long as you can remember. Can you tell us a bit about your background and where your love of art came from? I suppose I've always been a creative, like for as long as I can remember, I've been drawing uh, my mum was really she was really good at encouraging it so she used to continually bring home scraps of paper that I could 
draw on and she was a preschool teacher so there was always craft materials around and things like that so it, it's, it was almost compu- like a compulsion for me even when I was really little and it, I think an escape looking back I realized it was an escape for me. And can you tell us a bit about where you grew up? I think it was in the rural area of northern New South Wales. Yeah, so it's um, near Coffs Harbour. It was about 40 k's west of Coffs Harbour in the valleys of New South Wales. It was a really beautiful spot but quite isolated. Yeah, we grew up on acreage out there and um, it was um, we had a lot of freedom, so a lot of bush and grew up kind of like covered in mud and all that sort of stuff. And I know you've talked about your school years as being pretty tough. Are you able to share a bit about what was going on for you at that time? Yeah, so I I um I was a, a really bright student. Like I was very smart. I was switched on. Um, I don't know, I guess, I had behavioural issues. So nowadays I think that would have been picked up. But back in those days it was it was kind of just I guess I was just seen as a disruptive and and um you know, there was a lot of punishment that was being doled out and stuff like that. Um, and, yeah, behaviourally nowadays things get picked up a lot more, like something's going on at home or something's not right here, whereas back in those days it was probably just seen as me being um, attention-seeking or something like that. But, yeah, there was a lot of issues at school for me. And then at home I had um, I grew up in an alcoholic home so there was a lot of um, shouting, a lot of violence, a lot of anger, a lot of noise. And I think, looking back, that my um, my escape into art and creativity was like a safe place away from all of that. Mm. Oh, I'm sorry that you experienced that. That must have been really tough. Mm. Um, and, I mean, what did you think your future held at that point? Did you think you were going to pursue an art career when you finished school? No, I... Honestly, like like looking back, like reflecting on my sort of mindset when I was really little, I did have a mindset that I was a naughty kid. So I kind of internalised those messaging, that messaging. And I, I see it happening now with, with kids. You know, it, it's like if someone tells you something enough, you start to believe it about yourself. So I really believe that I was kind of naughty and, you know, defective in some way, like I was constantly getting in trouble. And I didn't really think that I didn't really have too many dreams and aspirations that I can remember. I just remember being quite bright and precocious and just thinking that I was, you know, a little bit naughty and and kind of, I guess, in a way I would end up acting out on that belief as well so that it would just perpetuate itself and then I would end up getting into more trouble. Right. But you did end up finishing school, I gather, and I believe you spent a few years working and saving um, to do what many young Aussies do. You went off to London (laughs) to go travelling. I did. So I, yeah, like I went into, um, I worked in bars and things like that. Um, I did finish school. I went and just did sort of menial jobs, like, you know, slitting from one job to another. Um, Ended up, yeah, saved up a bit of money, went overseas, travelled a bit. Um, yeah, like I did a lot of that sort of stuff and I didn't really kind of pick up at that point that I might've had an issue with drugs and alcohol, especially alcohol. Like I didn't really, it, it, it kind of, um, almost in the culture that we live in, it, I kind of blended in. So it was very much like no one would have picked it up. 
I can distinctly remember parts of that trip where I would, um, I would, like I was over there for a few years because we've my sisters and I have got dual nationality because uh, our dad was born over in England. So there was parts of it where I would I would change plans or do things just so that I could continue to be around the drinking environment. And at that point, I'd already started working in clubs. Um, I started working as an exotic dancer, and I was working um, in the clubs. And that job for me, like I had a few people that flagged that job with me and saying like is this really what you want to do and I remember arguing with them being like you know don't judge my life choices this isn't about you like there's nothing wrong with this job like which I still believe that to be true there's absolutely nothing wrong with working in sex work in the sex industry but for me it was a place for me to be able to hide in plain sight with my alcoholism and I didn't want to be like I could be drunk at work all the time and no one ever questioned it so it was perfect um, there was nothing really about the job that attracted me more than the fact that I could be drunk all the time. Yeah, I read a a, a piece saying that, um, you know, given some of the challenges that you'd had when you were younger, that when you discovered alcohol, it was kind of game over. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like I, I remember um, hearing someone talk about the, the first drink and the first time they'd gotten drunk and the feeling that it gave them. And I related a lot because it was like being in my skin growing up, I never felt normal. I always felt like I was, you know, um, a day behind everybody else or like everyone else had got the manual on how to do life and I didn't get it. And as soon as I had a drink and felt the the effects of alcohol, I felt normal for the first time. So I felt like I could sit in my own skin and I could be a part of and I could talk to people and I could have friends and I could socialise and be funny and outgoing. Like that was what it did for me. So, you know, and it just snowballed from there. And, I, you know, and, and it runs in the family. Like people people talk about it being, um, you know, hereditary and it's definitely a thing <laughs> for sure. Yeah. 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 Um, and so you arrived back from London in your late 20s and you were living in Sydney at that point and working in King's Cross. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds like things were starting to spiral for you. What did your life look like at that point? Yeah, so I I came back from the UK, um, still, you know, thought I was living the dream. I don't know. <laughs> Denial is pretty, it's a pretty crazy thing. Um, yeah, I was working in the Cross and um, I think it was around about that time that I tried to um, cocaine for the first time so it wasn't really something I ever got into I never really like I'd tried party drugs before but um when I got back to Sydney I started using um cocaine and that that was kind of like I was just living in like a bed sit um with my friend and we were both working in the cross dancing and I discovered this this cocaine and uh, like I didn't really think anything about it I just remember thinking oh this if I take this stuff then I can drink more and I can be alert for longer and I was just amazed by how like instead of passing out at like 1am I could stay up until like 4 or 5am or even a whole day and just continue to drink like it was just you know for me it was like the the thing the next it took my alcoholism and my addiction to the next level you know um I had no idea that I was going to become addicted to that as well and um, I didn't know what it was doing to my mental health and my brain. I had no clue. I wasn't informed about any of it. So, you know, I just continued to party. Um, that was in 2011 that I picked up that stuff for the first time and um, things, things just got slowly worse, yeah. 
Right. Well, yeah, I guess things did come to a head for you um, in 2015. I think just before Christmas you had a, a knock on the door from the police. Um, I mean, in whatever way you're comfortable, are you able to share kind of the circumstances that led up to that day? Yeah, sure. So I had um, I had picked up, like I said, picked up cocaine for the first time in 2011. Um, I quickly got addicted to that, um, like just... I don't know. It's weird with drugs, with drug addiction that the, it's like, um, I always thought I had control. I always thought that I was really smart and really together. And I have, there's no way that I would ever become a drug addict. Like that's just not something I would do. Like that's for other people. And how quickly this drug took over me was, was mind blowing. So I quickly became addicted to the drug and then when you become addicted to a drug, it's like you can rationalize the most insane behavior in your mind. Like your mind can come up with this insane behavior in order to, you know, you can make it, you can make it make sense in your head. So like um, my way of, of getting more drugs and using more drugs was to sell the drugs. I was like, if I can, if I can get more of it and then sell it, then I can use that money to buy more drugs and then I can use some of the drugs that I'm selling. And it was just like it made perfect sense. Like it was like, yeah, this is, this is genius. Like I'll just do that, you know. So and because I had, because of where I was working, I had no shortage of customers and I thought, you know, this is great, you know, this is perfect and I did see a lot of that sort of behavior around me. So I thought, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with this. And I didn't actually think um, that what I was doing was a big deal because I thought, yeah, I know it's illegal, but the police and, you know, they're not going to come after someone like me, just like a little using addict, like who, who, who dabbles and, you know, um, still at this point, I didn't see myself as having a big problem, but you know, I was using and dealing, um, selling and using and selling in, in the nightclub where I was working for several months and right. obviously the police eventually got wind of it um, and started an investigation and I was under investigation for a few months. And then, yeah, one day it was um, December 20th, 2015, there was a huge police operation in the cross. They shut down the whole street and they raided a bunch of clubs because there was quite a few people I think they picked up on that were dealing I was just one of them I wasn't working in any kind of like there was no no organization like it wasn't like some cartel or anything it was just a lot of for me it was just this drunk addicted woman doing her own thing that was purely what I was doing and so yeah they shut down the cross they arrested um, a few people I wasn't at work that night. I got this big headache and decided not to go in. And so the police ended up knocking on my door and they said, you know, you're under arrest. And I kind of just like nodded and was like, yep, okay. And I got my things. And I remember thinking like, I actually don't really remember what I was thinking, but I thought I was going to come home. I thought Mm -hmm. that like I would go to the police station and, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd ring a lawyer or I'd ring somebody and they would see that I was, you know, yes, I, I was using and, yes, I'd partaken in, like, the selling of, you know, some drugs. But I, I really did think I was going to come home. So I just took a few things in my bag and I had, like, just, like, a nightdress on and my flip-flops and I, I, I really believed, like, I'd be home in a day or two. Once I just went and explained the situation to the police, I would come home. I, I had no idea that I was going to be charged with uh, quite a serious crime and that I would go to prison. 
so yeah it was pretty wild right and I mean you weren't in a great headspace at that point either I gather like things had really taken a bit of a toll yeah so when you look when I look back chronologically at my life you know because eventually I did enter rehab so I got the opportunity to look back at my life chronologically which is something that you do is you can see a lot of things like um, trauma and, and mental health undiagnosed things and one thing just compounds on top of the other and when 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 people go along their lives like in my situation I just went along my life continually adapting to one horrible situation after another and never ever looking at the situation and thinking there's a problem here I would just adapt. So, you know, it was like I, I had, you know, childhood trauma that I hadn't dealt with. I had stuff that I, you know, there was mental illness in my family um, and I had I had adapted to the, I had a really maladjusted way of viewing the world. Um, I had mental illness issues myself. Um, I was medicating myself with drugs and alcohol and that has its own impact on your mind and your mental health. And so by the time I got to, 31 which is when I was arrested um I was a complete mess like I had no um I had no grasp on reality whatsoever you know this world that I'd created for myself was the only one I knew and I thought I was in the right and everybody else was wrong (laughs) and um yeah yeah you spent 14 months in prison Mm -hmm. um and you've talked about how tough that was, um, particularly having your family come to visit you there. Can you describe the environment that you were in and and what you were feeling at that time? Yeah, so I, um, perhaps a little bit cliche, it was it was almost like I felt like I was in the wrong place. You know, this this you know I don't belong here. <laughs> I think every new new prisoner feels that way. Like the first time they get arrested and the first time they go into custody, they think there's been some awful mistake. You know, so I. I went in there thinking, this isn't, I'm not, like, this is silly. Like, why am I even here? And um, I quickly realised that um, a lot of the women that were in there were the, the same as me, you know, just compound trauma, just, you know, undiagnosed mental illness, just, um, yeah, there was a lot of that going on. So, um, and a lot, of the, a lot of the women were in there for really, really minor sort of nonviolent drug crime. So I... Um, I yeah I, I eventually realized this you know I was exactly where I was supposed to be I'd committed a crime I was being you know um remanded in custody for that crime um I needed to go in to when you're remanded in custody that means that you need to stay inside the prison until your court date because you're deemed to be at risk um of continually partaking in that crime or for whatever reason there's certain crimes that are more serious, which means you're automatically remanded in custody. Um, and the crime that I was charged with was one of those. It was quite um, a culture shock because of, um, like, just the amount of distress that the people were in that were inside the prison was kind of confronting. I suppose for me, I, I just thought, well, some of these women should be in, in hospital. Some of these women should be in mental health facilities. Why are they here, you know? So that was kind of um, confronting. But, yeah, it was overall it was a really eye-opening experience. And what would you say were some of the biggest challenges that you faced during those 14 months? Well, at the beginning it was really difficult to get any um, information 
Um, and that wasn't necessarily a reflection on the system. It was more to do with the fact that I think of the time of year that it was. I had no idea what was going on and I couldn't get any answers from anyone. So I didn't, I couldn't get a hold of a lawyer. Like it was just really a mess. And I kind of felt like I was slipping through the cracks. And so that would also bring up this really horrible desperation feeling of like nobody's listening to me, you know. So that was hard. And also, I was, I was being, um, I didn't realize at the time, but I was having withdrawals from alcohol and I was really sick and I couldn't, and I hadn't flagged that I was, I was actually an alcoholic in the, when they, when you do the intake, if you have alcoholism, you're meant to like, you'd say something like they say, Oh, you, you know, how much do you drink and what do you use? And you would sort of tell them. And then if you appeared to be an alcoholic, they would put you on uh, some medication to help with the withdrawal symptoms but I didn't flag it because at that point still didn't realise that I had a problem. So I had really horrific withdrawal symptoms um, from the alcohol and I was really, really unwell and I, and I couldn't really get much medical attention because there's an entire process that you need to go through to get medical attention and I still wasn't aware of that. Um, so that was really tough. But I guess the biggest challenges was was keeping my mental health together. That was super hard. I'd never been a sober adult in the world before. Um, I was suddenly sober and I was suddenly thrust into this world of just like mania around me and I and my mental health really struggled but I had to hide it because it's not a safe place for you to be having, you know, meltdowns and crying all the time and things like that. It's not the sort of place you can do that. So um, that was really tough. Yeah, yeah. And what are some of the things that helped you get through that period? There was a few things. So the art process, so me coming back to the art, you know, I, I'd i always been, you know, throughout my 20s and everything, I'd always continued to draw and be creative, but I never took it seriously. Um, when I got sent to prison, you know, uh, it was really early on that someone gave me a pen and it was like a really big deal to have a pen because we were in induction. So it wasn't like you weren't allowed anything that you could harm yourself with. So I had this pen and I started drawing and someone said to me, oh, wow, you can really draw. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I used to, you know, I used to dabble. And then someone asked me, oh, can you draw this? Can you draw that? And then before I knew it, I had all these people wanting stuff from me. So while I was in custody, it became like, a, um, I don't know, like a having an ability like that was seen as really like regarded and so people like oh you're that chick who draws like can you do a drawing for me and I was able to kind of leverage myself in a little way like to be able to have something that like that kind of kept me sane and kept me safe and um you know when people want something from you it's kind of a good thing in there like I don't know it's just it's weird and I, I remember thinking um you know if I can make if I can make this work in here in this environment, surely I could do something with it on the outside. I guess I've just got to learn to believe in myself a little bit and then when I get out, I'm going to really, really, really try to to make something of this art because it feels like it's what I'm supposed to do. And you were connected with a mentor while you were in prison. Can you share a bit about that and how that helped you? Yeah, so that happened about three months into my stay there, um, they talk about the fog lifting. So this is something that um, people in alcohol and drug addiction recovery talk about about three months after getting sober, the fog lifts, which is where you start to see and, and smell and hear and, and your senses all come back. 
and that happened for me and around about that time I found a um a flyer for the Women's Justice Network and it was talking about um people on the outside who write letters to female inmates and become like pen pals and I thought oh this, this sounds amazing and I had I had this new energy because I you know the fog had lifted and so I decided to write them a letter and um they wrote back they wrote me back like a handwritten letter and that was huge like it was such a big deal um getting mail was a huge deal in there and um I, I soon one they sent one of their workers out to meet with me and um, she sat down and, and I remember thinking, wow, this is incredible. Like somebody cares. Like I can't believe this is a thing, you know. And at this point my mental health was really bad. My self-esteem was terrible. You know, I had issues with my family. They they weren't coping with the fact that I was in custody at all. Like it was there was a lot going on. So they quickly matched me with a mentor and it became this like lifeline for me. Um, it felt like had a really low point when everyone on the outside was struggling to understand what was happening for me this relationship that I'd made with this mentor through the women's justice network became like like a little beacon for me of hope because I could have really easily slid down that you know no one gives a shit about me my life's over you know it could have easily gone that way for me but I I suddenly had this complete stranger who wanted to know about me, didn't want to know about all the things, the awful things, you know, they wanted to know about who I was and what my hopes and dreams were and, like, was really fascinated with with um, just who I was as a person and that was really cool. And what did that relationship look like? So you said there was letter writing. Did your mentor also come to see you in the prison? Like, did you meet face-to-face? Yeah, so normally um, they'll match you based on mutual interests, so they won't just match you with anybody. They'll match you based on um, things that you have in common and, and shared values and things like that. So we got matched um, and at first we were writing letters to each other and then it was a couple of months in, um, she came out to visit me with one of the staff members from WJN and I could tell that she was really nervous. Um, I was really excited because I hadn't had many visits so it was like Christmas Day, you know, I was really excited Um and I was, I think I was probably quite manic. I was like bouncing around and asking her a million questions and she was probably freaked out, but it was really cool. Like we, we got to have a big laugh and we got to, um, you know, finally meet and, um, yeah, it was really cool. It, and I don't think too many people get visits, you know, but I was really lucky that I got matched mm. like while I was still inside because some people don't get matched until they've been released. You know, it's a, it's a, it depends on the individual. Well, you were released in 2017, um, so just three years ago now, but you've really turned your life around in a massive way since then. Um, But I was thinking, I mean, it can't have been easy finding your way back in the outside world. What what steps did you take to get back on your feet and how much support did you have? So what I did was through the Women's Justice Network, I was linked into um, some housing when I got out. So I got um, released to a women's refuge. I had never been homeless before or anything like that, so they were really good with helping me out with that stuff. The people at the Women's Refuge were fantastic. I'd never really encountered people like this before, so I had just spent my first sort of clarity, my first clear-headed you know, months in a place where kindness doesn't really exist. And so then when I got out and there was all these people being really kind to me, I didn't really know how to cope. 
Um, and there was a lot of really supportive, really kind people that were helpful. Um, it wasn't easy. I did have a lot of undiagnosed mental health stuff going on still. I still had a lot of like, uh, you know, triggers and things like that that would happen. Um, and it got to about, I think I was out for about a month, month and a half. And I realized that if something didn't happen, I was going to drink again because I didn't know how to cope mm. with anything. I didn't know how to have a conversation. I didn't know how to process any emotion. I had no emotion regulation. I had no skills on how to just be in the world at all. And the only thing I knew how to do was to, to drink, to medicate those feelings. So I went to, I, I basically <laughs> traipsed myself from Redfern to Glebe um, and knocked on the door of this women's rehab and I had to go back there a bunch of times to convince them to let me go there because it was a residential rehab and uh, they said, if you're going to come here, you need to come here and live here and and, and we lock you in at night. And, all, and I said, no, I can't do that. I've just gotten released from prison. There's no way you're locking me in a house, yeah. but I really need help. And so they were really good. They said, okay, well, we'll give you a trial for a month. We'll let you come in um, as a day client. And we'll see how you go. And I ended up staying there for two years. <laughs> yeah, so oh, wow. I was, yeah, so I was a client of their service for just over two years um, and got a lot of really, really amazing support and help through that service. And, you know, I was continually at that same time I was still connected to my uh, mentor from the Women's Justice Network. And, um, yeah, it was great. And you also threw yourself into some study um, during that time. What course did you do? So I went to TAFE at night and did a cert for in community services, um, drug and alcohol. So um, I don't know. It's just I think it's something that a lot of people do when they get into drug and alcohol recovery is they become fascinated with their own process. So for me it was just natural that I wanted to kind of understand it more. Now for the first time I had understood I had starting to understand, you know, addiction and mental health. And um, around about this time was the first time I got a proper mental health um, screening done. And I actually started getting um, regular therapy and uh, get onto some um, mental health medication. And my, my, my mental health started to really stabilize around this point. So, you know, I was doing a lot of stuff, but I was also doing a healing journey for myself as well. Yeah. So, it, it, that helped a lot, like the combination of therapy and rehab and, and, and study and medication. It was, it was a combination of a lot of stuff, but the picture mm. started to come together. You know, the puzzle pieces started to fall together and I started to become like a bit more of a whole person again instead of this fragmented mess. <laughs> um, yeah. It started to feel like the pieces started to come back together again. Yeah. And you're now working for the Women's Justice Network, which is the same not-for-profit organisation that helped you when you were in prison mm. and you used your TAFE uh, degree to become a youth worker. So can you tell us a bit more about the work that they do and your role as a youth worker? Yeah, sure. So, you know, it was unexpected, the invitation to apply for a role with them. I didn't expect that at all, but I completed my studies and um, I was... I can't remember what I was doing. I was working in traffic control or something. I was just working and just, you know, 
just get, trying to get back on my feet and I, um, you know, received an invitation to apply for this role and I went for it and I got it and I was really surprised and excited um, that they would give the opportunity to me um, but that's kind of their values as an organisation is that they not only want to support women from custody but they also provide opportunities for women from custody as well. So that was pretty cool and um, I'm able to use what I've learned and what I've been through to I actually now go back into the youth uh, juvenile justice facilities and I sit with the girls in there, the young women who are ages from about 13 anywhere up to 21 years old that are in custody and I sit with them and we do art and we do craft and we, we do like um, just have, have chats and we, we, do, um, we do groups with them and it's, it's, it's amazing. It's like I couldn't have... I could never have pictured that my life would look like this in a million years and I couldn't have pictured that I would be able to do something so meaningful because it's huge. It's really meaningful for me and um, I know that clients get a lot out of it and, um, yeah, I just love it. And how many women does the Women's Justice Network support at the moment? So So they have upwards of 90 mentors which are volunteers and they are matched with mentees who are women who are from custody or have been you know at risk of entering custody um they also have case management clients which are women who need a little bit more support so like when I got released from custody they helped me find somewhere to live things like that and they have around 50 women who are on the case management client list um we have a really small staff so it the the caseload is huge and since COVID happened um, and they did start, uh, the, the corrective services started releasing a lot more women, um, the the demand for Women's Justice Network support services has gone through the roof and they're finding it really difficult to cope with the demand because um, there's a lot of women who are on the waiting list to, to get matched with a mentor or get some case management support and unable to because we've only got so many staff. Mm. And these are women in Sydney and the Central Coast, is that right? Yeah, so we service, you know, Central Coast, Newcastle area and we we service the, the Sydney and Western Sydney area. So, yeah, mm. we have, um, you know, hopefully one day this sort of service will be available in more places but at the moment we're limited due to funding. Well, you do have a fundraiser going on at the moment. Can you tell us a bit about that, how much you're hoping to raise and what the funds will go towards? Yeah, sure. So we um, normally have a fundraising event every year, but because of um, coronavirus, COVID, um, obviously the fundraising events couldn't go ahead. So um, the the service relies on donors and, and community support in order to exist, really. And so we had to adapt our fundraiser to go online um, and it's made a little bit of a, I guess, it's made a huge difference really in in our ability to fundraise. So um, we put our fundraiser up on the website, which is www.wjn.org.au. But, yeah, we're a long way from our goal um, and if and when we do reach our goal, that will mean that we'll be able to hire more caseworkers and more staff and keep the staff that we've got for longer so it's really it's really important that we are able to get another caseworker on um, at minimum another one it would be great or more um, because then we can access more clients or we can provide support to more clients because the women are already there that need the help 
but they're not able to get it. So, um, and there's myself and a couple of other workers that will be able to continue doing what we're doing with more funding. Our, like for example, my program, the overheads are really low. It doesn't cost a lot to do what I do, but you know, funding is hard to come by, especially with um, government funding and stuff like that. So we do rely on community support and donations. Mm. And I mean, what kind of outcomes do you see? You, you talked about your own experience and why, you know, how helpful and meaningful that mentoring relationship was to you. Can you give us an idea, maybe a story or an example of, of how it's helped someone else? Yeah, I mean, oh, there's so many to choose from. Like we've had women who have, you know, had things like through case management support and the staff advocating for them. We've had women who've been able to, you know, um, secure housing. We've had women who've been able to keep housing. They've had, you know, someone walking alongside them through restoration of children. We've had women who have had, you know, um, court support for the first time in their lives. We've had women who've, you know, had access to rehabilitation for the first time. Um, we've had so many amazing outcomes and even with the program that I'm doing, the the youth, I had, um, so I'm able to, through my own connections, I'm able to bring women into the youth prison to tell their stories about, like women like myself who've been through challenges and, and come out the other side, um, I'm able to take them in to tell their stories to these young girls and, and then these young girls are coming up at the end and saying to some of the speakers, you know, can I give you a hug, like, I'm so inspired by what you said and it's incredible and the um the staff of the of the youth justice facility um, have recently given us feedback that the impact that that program and those speakers has made on the girls has been really really noticeable like for the staff to say that is such a huge deal you know um so we know that it Mm -hmm. works and we know that it's actually making a difference and um it's providing these young girls with a bit of guidance and a bit of like they're able to relate and see themselves in these women and it's so important that they get access to that kind of non-judgmental support for me it was a huge turning point so I know it can be a turning point for others as well Mm. I know you've talked about the importance of changing the narrative for these women but particularly these young girls Um, what exactly do you mean by changing the narrative well you know going back to my own story um and when I was little and I kind of internalised that that narrative of that I was, you know, a naughty kid, you know, and then I just became that. So I've, I'm a strong believer in, you know, if you tell someone that, that they're bad, eventually they'll become that. So I really try to push that that messaging with these girls and, and not label them. And we uh, I try to, try to um, encourage them to speak about themselves and each other with, you know, high praise and, and really focus on... Um, self-esteem building, self-worth building, resilience and try to change the narrative around how they see themselves and how society sees them because I really believe that that's hugely important in the recovery journey and in, in, in the choices that you could potentially make in your life. If you can see yourself as being worthy, then you may make decisions that reflect that. Yeah. No, I think that's so true. And I think, you know, it's really important for people to remember that a lot of these women and girls have come from very disadvantaged backgrounds or have, you know, a huge percentage I know have experienced abuse of some sort. So, you know, I think just having a little bit of empathy, as you say, not certainly not being judgmental, but having a little bit of empathy and understanding for what their circumstances may have been. Mm-hmm. Um 
So you've also continued your work as an artist, which you talked about, you know, that particularly helped you when you're in prison. It's been a go-to for you your whole life. Can you tell us a bit about the work you produce and, and how it raises funds for the Women's Justice Network? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, one of my dreams when I got out of custody was to be able to have my own website one day and to sell my artwork online on like, you know, an Etsy or an Instagram or whatever. That was like a big a big goal of mine and I've it's taken a few years but I finally finally got my website up and running and I'm starting to produce um, art prints and greeting cards and things like that, little items that people can buy with um, my art on it and I try to incorporate like really positive messaging and, you know, female empowerment, things themes like that in my art so it's kind of reflective of the work I do and I donate 20% of the proceeds of everything that I sell to the Women's Justice Network fundraiser and straight back into the programs to so that the you know it's kind of a, a, a full circle. Mm. You know, I get inspired by the things that I experience when I go in to do the work that I do, and then that reflects in my art, and then that money goes straight back in. So it's kind of like this nice flow. Um, but yeah, if people want to check out my art, they can go to my website, which is www.allyjadeart. So A L L Y J A D E art.com. Yep, that's awesome. And we'll put the links in the show notes so that people can click through if they're interested to see more. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's so great that you've done that and um, followed your passion and in that full circle way, it couldn't be a more beautiful story, really. Thank you so much. <laughs> so we're all about women making brave choices on this podcast and you've certainly done that in a multitude of ways, certainly in the way you've turned your life around and in the way that you share your story to help other women who are experiencing what you went through. What would you say has been your bravest moment and how did you find the courage to go for it? My bravest moment? Oh, I think, you know what, I think my bravest moment was to admit that I needed help. So that was that was the scariest thing that I've done. I think a lot of people can probably relate. Um, we deal with, as women, we kind of deal with a lot of um, societal pressure to know it all, to be it all, to to have it all. And when I actually put my hand out and asked for support and said, I actually don't know what I'm doing and I really need help, that was such a scary moment. Letting go of that self-reliance and letting someone else help me was huge. Mm. Um, and so that it was a really, really, really smart decision, but it was scary and I felt I feel like when I look back it was quite brave. Yeah, and where do you think that courage came from to finally take that step? Um, well, in my case it was I think it was out of sheer desperation because I knew that the alternative, what was on the cards for me, the alternative was not was not great. You know, the the other thing is the women that were around me at the time that were supporting me were inspiring me to, to be a bit brave and to take that leap. Um, I was really, really supported by some incredible people and, um, you know, people like the, the workers and the, and the support staff at Women's Justice Network and my mentor and the women at the refuge. Like I looked up to these women, these selfless, amazing women, and I thought I want to be like that, you know, so whatever I have to do to get there, I'll just do it. I'll just put my hands up and let go of all the control and just let someone else lead me and guide me. And, and, it, and it's what really worked out. And now I'm able to do that for others. So it's it's pretty cool. Yes, you are one of those women. <laughs> <Yay>. <laughs> 
Um, well, I did want to ask you who are some of the women that you look to and who inspire you. Are there any specific women? Do you know what? The women who inspire me, and I've asked, I've been asked this question a few times around like, you know, is there any celebrities or famous people or whatever? And the, my answer is no. The women who inspire me and who inspire my art are the everyday, ordinary women who are battling addiction or you know having their children removed or coming back from domestic violence or prison like those women when I get to hear their stories these ordinary women who've just struggled against insurmountable odds have just had let down after let down after let down in their lives who continue to come back and try to be better they inspire me like they inspire me to keep going and to me they're you know they're heroes Heroes. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> they're, um, they're, they're, they're the most inspiring people and that's what keeps me going, yeah. And if there's someone listening out there who might be struggling to, you know, move forward from a difficult time in their life, do you have any final tips for them? Ask for help. Just just keep asking for help. Even if, you know, the, you don't hear what you want to hear the first time, just keep reaching out because eventually someone will be able to point you in the right direction of where you can get some assistance and there's a lot of really amazing people out there that want to help and want to support so don't be afraid to ask for help Mm, beautiful well thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your story with us Ali thanks for having me that was Ali Jade artist and youth worker with the Women's Justice Network which you can find at wjn.org.au We'll include a link to their fundraiser and to Ali's art website in the show notes. If you're enjoying these conversations, it would mean a lot if you could help spread the word. Tell a friend about us, share a link, or leave us a nice rating and review. And if you have any questions about today's episode, please feel free to get in touch. You can find us on Instagram at What She Did Next Podcast. What She Did Next is produced and hosted by me, Jackie Uwe. Thanks for listening.